Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Today we're continuing our family reunion series, uh, and we're going to be going through the book of Esther. So if you guys, uh, if you are unfamiliar with the book of Esther, you're in for a treat. Uh, the book of Esther is probably my favorite book of the Bible, and it's <laughs> I should have a, a more spiritual reason for it being my favorite, uh, but it's my favorite because of the story, and I'm a movie guy, and when I say that I'm a movie guy, it doesn't mean that I like movies. I mean, like, I went to film school. I make movies. I, I've made sermon videos and short films and all the stuff. We're actually completing uh, our first feature film. We, we made a faith-based romantic comedy that we're hoping to, to start distribution this summer. So when I say I'm a film guy, like I'm really a film guy. And when I look at the story of Esther, I think, man, this is amazing. Like this, the story here is just, I mean, it's filled with everything you need for a good film, right? It has this, uh, these, I mean, terribly interesting characters, right? With Esther and Haman and Mordecai and, and even the king, who's kind of comical in the story. But um, it, the, the setting is extravagant, right? We're, it's taking place in ancient Persia. Uh, we've got the plot. There's a lot of dramatic, uh, dramatic elements to the plot of the story. Uh, it's got the strong female lead, which is, is kind of a uh, cool and unique thing uh, in film and, and becoming more prominent. But uh, this story just centers on Esther as, as the primary character. Um, and, and she is thrust into these circumstances that are filled with moral ambiguities, uh, it's got, um, <coughs> excuse me, danger, right? Like there's, there's death that is uh, <laughs> a possibility at one point in this book. Um, and, and then there's these reversals of fortune. There's this irony that's in the book too. So the, the plot, the story of Esther is just this awesome example of storytelling. So I've always thought like Esther would make a great stage musical or film or, you know, even just like a, a television series, I mean, miniseries. So I, I think in that term. So today is going to be a little bit different than the, the normal expository. We look at a passage and then kind of go through it. I'm actually, we're going to go through. I'm not going to read the entire 10 chapters of Esther. So, you know, you guys can calm down a little bit. But uh, we're going to go through the whole story. We're going to kind of paraphrase it and read, read uh, key passages. And we'll kind of go through uh, the elements of a story. And, <clears throat> excuse me, there's four elements to a story that I kind of want to focus on today. So whenever you're telling a story, whether it be a film or a book or you know, anything else, one of the first things that you, you kind of think about is the setting, right? What is the world like that the story is taking place in? And then the second thing that we would think about um, is that the story has to have a hero. There, there's a hero who is kind of our eyes into that world and that situation. And the hero is usually there's, a, there's an established world, and then the hero is the one who needs to either preserve that good world or change that bad world. And, and the hero is the person that, that kind of drives that story. And the plot is the way that that happens. So as we, we look at, you know, a story, the plot or the details, and then this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened, and then that caused this, and then the last thing that's an important element of the story uh, is a moral or a message that the story is trying to get across. 
So whenever we go see a movie, whenever we watch anything, these are kind of four elements of a story that we could analyze and look at and say, okay, well, what was the setting? What was the, uh, who was the hero? What were, what were they trying to achieve? How did they achieve that? And then why was this story told in the first place? Every piece of media we watch has an agenda. It has an author that's created it with a purpose, right? Because we're created in the image of God. So as we look at Esther, I want to kind of think through these, these pieces, and, and we're going to start with the setting. Uh, so our story takes place at four, uh, right around 480 B.C., so 480 years before Christ. Uh, it, was, uh, it takes place in the city of Susa, and Susa was the capital of the first Persian Empire, uh, the first Persian Empire, which is the Archimedean uh, Empire, uh, was founded by Cyrus the Great right around 560 B.C. So Cyrus founded this empire. Um, he kind of expanded. He built. He did some things. And then in 539 B.C., or 539, 540, um, the Jews were in exile in Babylon. Babylonia had defeated Jerusalem, kind of brought them back. When Kenny was talking about Nehemiah last week, and, you know, the exiles returned, and you kind of go through, and the Nehemiah, they, or they actually the in Ezra, they rebuilt the temple, and then in Nehemiah, he gets sent out to build this wall for protection and, and all of that. Um, that started in 540 when Cyrus took over Babylon, uh, as Jeremiah had um, prophesied, and um, Ezra recorded, and Cyrus lived out that prophecy. Uh, he conquered Babylon. He, one of the first things that he did was free the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. He actually gave resources towards that, and, and those, uh, uh, those group, that group of folks that went back, they, they started rebuilding that temple. Now, shortly after that, um, <clears throat> or, well, actually, not even shortly after that, uh, continually before and after that, Cyrus was actually a ruler that respected a religious diversity, right? So the Persian Empire was an empire uh, that was built on a couple of uh, familiar things to us, right? So religious diversity is one of them. Uh, diversity of people is another, right? There was a, it was a vast empire. It covered 5.5 million square miles. Uh, it was the largest empire at that point in, in time. That was the biggest empire that had uh, developed, uh, it stretched, uh, as we'll see in, in chapter 1, from India to Ethiopia. Uh, the other things that make the Persian Empire uh, somewhat unique in the time, they were the first empire to have um, a document for human rights, which I thought was really interesting, especially considering the context of our story here, um, if you guys are familiar with it. But they were the first empire that had a document for um, human rights. They had a, a very large military. Uh, they also were the first empire that was modeled off of a centralized bureaucratic administration. So what that means is that the capital in Susa, or, or the, the seat of the empire in Persia, they had um, kind of the, the federal government in terms that we would understand, and then the, um, uh, the they had provinces kind of spread out. There's 127 that are talked about in Esther, but they would have kind of governors, they call them uh, satires, uh, that would oversee certain regions. And they would pay uh, tribute and, and taxes. They would kind of have complete control over their section, and then they would push those forward to the central government. So there's a lot of similarities between the Persian Empire 
and the United States, right? I mean, we have religious diversity, we're, we're very bureaucratic, um, we're, we're definitely a center of culture and art, which was a, another feature of um, the Persian Empire at that time. Uh, we have uh, great influence over the world around us. Uh, we're a powerful nation in that way. So as we look at the story of Esther, the thing that kept coming back to my mind as I read through this story over the last couple of weeks, over and over and over again, is that, man, like this is very, very common to where we're at. There's a lot of similarities here to Esther's world and our world. And you wouldn't necessarily pick that up from reading through the book. Uh, because the book is, uh, a, the, the situation in the book it has a lot to do about persecution, um, which, again, is not something that's void of the United States as well. Uh, but our story is not, does not have Cyrus as the king. We've moved beyond that. So our story takes place, uh, again, not in the kind of 560 or 530, but we've moved down into 480, uh, right around there. And uh, the king at the time is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. If you read it in the text, there's no way that you would know that that's how it's pronounced. Uh, but that's how we pronounce it. You guys can, can uh, you'll hear it numerous times. Um, now, in the first chapter, and there's going to be a lot of scripture today because we're kind of going through. So um, the first verse that we're going to look at is Esther 1, 6, and 7. And in the first chapter of Esther, we see that Ahasuerus has put the, dis- uh, put the wealth and power of the kingdom on display. Right? So it says um, in Esther 1, 6 or 7, um, he's, he's thrown this feast and he's put all of these things out to show how wealthy and powerful the kingdom was. And it says there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So out of the king's bounty, he lavished on everyone else. And so this party was opulent, and it encouraged those in attendance to drink with no compulsion, which in, in our terms would be in no regard, right? There's no compulsion to stop. There's no compulsion that you have to... Uh, withhold from. In fact, he gave a commandment uh, to his servants to do what, any man, do what every man desired. Whatever they wanted, get it for them. So this was an opulent party. Um, and on the last day of the feast, it was, he, he spent 180 days kind of hosting these uh, bureaucrats and, and leaders from different areas, brought them in, kind of showed the power of the kingdom, throws this seven-day feast in the garden, not just for them, but, but for the uh, folks around. And he, on the last day of the feast, after seven days of feasting, he has this great idea about putting one last possession on display. And he has this prided, prided, this prided possession that he wants to put on display. And, and in verse 11, we see it. He orders his eunuchs, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. So if we, we continue with the story, uh, you know, the king, bring, king wants to come and show his queen off. She refuses. So the king is filled with anger, and he immediately consults with his advisors who are around him, because that's kind of his habit. Now, remember... 
<laughs> they've had seven days of drinking, and they've all been there partying. So he's angry, and he asks his advisors who are around him, who I'm assuming were partaking in the party. So they've been partying for seven days, and then he's like, hey, what should we do? And I kind of see it like this scene out of like some ridiculous 80s movie where he's like, hey, man, what should we do? You know, he's just kind of like not all there, and they're all kind of, you know, a little tipsy because the, the idea they come up with just is, is terribly harsh. Because the queen wasn't going to uh, come in and be put on display, uh, she is going to never be allowed in the presence of the king again. We're going to strip her of the crown, and we're going to find a new one. And they think, yeah, that's a great idea. We're going to do that. So that's what they do. And, and, and there's, there's more details to it. They, they put out this, um, this uh, proclamation about that each man is the, the master of his own home, and, and the wives should obey them and, and do all this. So in, in the concern that these men had of... Whoa, the, the queen disregarded the king, and this is going to infect the whole empire. This sounds like a drunk fear. Um, then what they do is they proclaim to the whole empire that the queen did this, rather than just kind of like taking care of it quiet. So the fear that they have, the solution is to proclaim what they didn't want to get out. So this is kind of the ridiculous advice that comes to him. Uh, so... A few days later, or, or however long it took for um, Hazarus's blood alcohol level to come down, uh, he remembers Vashti and what happened, right? And he starts to think about her. Now, there is an undercurrent to this whole story of sexual conduct, and, and it's not brought out clearly, right? So as, as, we things, as, as we read this passage and it says, you know, he remembered Vashti, I think that there's probably a, a different context to that than just he remembered what happened. Uh, so he was thinking about Vashti, he was thinking about, oh, I need a queen, and, and you know, like there's, there's certain things that obviously the queen is providing along with his whole harem of concubines. Um, and he, he goes to his young men and asks them, what should I do? And the young men who attend to him give him counsel on how to find a new queen, Right? You know, it's, you, you think about, uh, you know, you go and say, hey, uh, <laughs> how should I find a, a love? How should I find someone? There's people who call Esther a romance, and I think they're absurd. Like, there's nothing romantic about this book, in my opinion. You know, they're, I don't know, that was harsh, but uh, I just, as I read it, I'm just like, I just don't see any romance in here. And we can see the, the young men's advice in Esther 2, 2 through 4. It says, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all of the provinces his kingdom, of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So this is all setting. This is all set up. We've established the world that exists. And now we're going to be introduced to the hero. And in Esther 2, 5 through 8, we are introdu introduced to both the hero, um, Esther, and then also the wise counsel, uh, Mordecai, which is kind of another uh, uh, character archetype that we see in a lot of stories. And again, just because I'm saying character and talking about story does not in intend that any of this is fictional and they're not real people. Uh, now, there was a Jew in Susa, 
the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Um, our hero, Esther, was probably in her early teens. Uh, she was a beautiful young woman, as it says in the text. Um, she was living in one of the wealthiest nations of the planet. Uh, it was a cultural center of the ancient world filled with a diverse population. And I'm sure that she had dreams. She had a life that she was thinking that she would like to live. You know, maybe she'd like to get married and, and have kids and, and you know, uh, take on uh, a family life in, in that way. Uh, maybe she wanted to return to Jerusalem. Maybe she wanted to travel or, you know, I mean, who knows, right? I mean, it's an ancient world, it's a different time, but I'm sure that she had some sort of thoughts about what her life would entail. Uh, but all of those dreams and hopes came to an end when the king's officers came and took her. Right? She was beautiful enough to be part of this interview process, right? and I call it an interview process with quotes. Uh, they put her in custody of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the king's women, and with all the other women collected uh, to be prepared to find out which would please the king. Right? So they collect them all, kind of prepare them to see which one is going to please the king. So this situation and, and the little bit of information that we have from Esther here tells us a couple things about her character, right? Um, there's a strength to Esther, right? She's an orphan. She lost both of her parents. Uh, when Esther goes in, she wins favor in all of her circumstances. So she doesn't allow the misfortunes that happen to her to defeat her. Uh, it doesn't allow that to embitter her. And, and I look at this situation and I think, man, like even in the context of ancient civilization and, and the different approaches to uh, marriage and, and courtship and, and things like that, being snatched up by the king to go and at best become a concubine and, or, well, I'm sorry, at worst, just be, be set aside. I mean, she could become the queen, but most of these girls didn't become the queen. They just became concubines. So this is not like this is not a happy day for Esther, but she goes in and does not allow that to be an, an embittering thing to her, but she actually wins the favor of the person that has been put into authority over her. In Esther 2.15, it says, um, actually, even before that, I want to talk just a little bit about the year that she's in the harem, right? So she's, she's put in that harem. So there's six months of like spices and then six months of, of ointments and oils. And, and the reason that there was this year-long process before they could go and spend the night with the king was one, uh, there was medicinal reasons for that, right? You grab these beautiful girls and we wanted to make sure that they didn't have any diseases, skin or otherwise. Uh, so that first six months was a purification kind of process. And then the second six months was to make sure that they were as beautiful and talented as they could be, right? And hopefully you guys understand what I mean by talented. Uh, Esther won favor in these circumstances. She kind of met this head on. And, and there's moral ambiguities here, right? I mean, like we can think like, why would Mordecai let that happen? And, and I totally get that. And the book does not address it. 
So there, there's just moral ambiguity to life. And one of the beautiful things about this book is that as we read it, this is life. And, and it's, it's the way it is. And when I say this book, I don't even just mean Esther, right? I mean, we think of all the stuff that is in the Old and New Testament that, that fellow believers, that our ancestors in Christ did. Like, man, there's no way that we can blow it to a point that God cannot overcome and use. Amen? Right? And, and this is no, no exception. Here's this, this, this terrible situation that Esther comes into. But as she goes into these situations, um, she does what she can to be humble, to win favor. And when her night comes to, to be with the king, uh, we see in Esther 2.15, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Um, and, and that little piece of the passage is one of the things that, that I use when I say that she was trained and, and, and built her talents. That's a, a piece of the passage that she took, she could take anything she wanted to out of the harem. And she's going in for this one night. But she did what Haggai told her to. And, and there's a humility and there's a, a, an acceptance of that, but there's also a subtext of why she's bringing those things and, and what's going on. So I think there's, again, there's, there's a, an undercurrent to this whole story that I think destroys the idea of this being a romance. But uh, on to verse 16. It says, When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. Ahasuerus didn't know what love was, right? Like, he loved her more than all of the virgins. He has no idea. Like, what he thought love was is not love. Uh, I just feel like that's uh, something that, especially in some of the, the films and, and media things that have been made about Esther, that's, like, highlighted, that there's this great romance between the two. And, and there's numerous things in this book that make me uh, disagree with that. So Esther's made queen, and Mordecai, who is her constant guardian, continues to walk with her, right? Uh, or continues to walk by. Every day he would go by the harem and check on her. And one day, as he did, um, he is in the king's gate. She's already queen. He's in the king's gate, and he hears two eunuchs talking about overthrowing the king and assassinating the king. He reports it to Esther. Esther reports it to the king. They check it out. They hang these two eunuchs. <clears throat> They record it in the book of records. <clears throat> now, again, we're looking at a lot of setup here. And in, in, in a film, you have, like, the first act. And in the first act, you have, like, uh, these plot points, and, and they kind of introduce all of the things that, that you're going to then unpack for the rest of the film. And this is one of those pieces, like, when you're watching a movie and you see something happen, and you think, oh, that's going to come up again. There's a reason they showed that. And, and this is kind of one of those things, right? We see this, this plot thwarted and recorded in the, in the book of records uh, coming up. Um, 
we see uh, numerous things established with, with Esther being the heroine here, Mordecai is the wise counselor. Uh, we've seen Esther kind of rise to this position, kind of come out of, um, you know, small life and, and now be thrust into the political stage. Um, now, the dramatic action of the story is now starting because there's a threat. There's a threat to undo this world. And there's a new player that comes on the scene, and the plot thickens. Because in Esther 3, 1, and 2, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Uh, Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15.3, Saul was ordered to wipe out the Amalekites, and he disobeyed. And now one of the descendants of the Amalekites has been raised to a position of power and authority here in Persia. <clears throat> so he's kind of like, you know, this second-in-command guy, and Mordecai would not bow to Haman. And, and I don't know if the reasoning for Mordecai not bowing uh, was centered on the, the conflict, that kind of tribal warfare of the, the, um, the Amalekites and, and the Israelites, the Amalekites kind of being a, a people that was, that was always kind of trying to uh, start war and, and cause conflict, um, or if it was just his obedience to worship God and God alone. But for whatever reason, Mordecai did not, and Haman was deeply insulted. Uh, Mordecai's insult incurred Haman's wrath, and it was not sufficient in Haman's mind to simply bring punishment to Mordecai. He wanted to wipe out Mordecai's entire people group. So, you know, you didn't bow to me, genocide is on my mind. So there's, there's a huge step here. So this is, this is kind of the, the plot mechanism. This is the thing that then brings the rest of the story, the, dr the drama of the story alive. And in Esther <clears throat> um, 3, 8 and 9, we see Haman talking to the king. Now, it's important to understand that between verses you know, 1 in chapter 3 and verse 8 in chapter 3, there was a year of plotting. So this wasn't like a, a crime of passion. This was a thought-out, driving thing in Haman's heart. And, and, and Esther 3, 8 to 9 uh, it says, Then Haman said to the king Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's law, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasury. Haman was willing to pay 10,000 talents, and, and I want to kind of express what that is. Um, this was an enormous amount of money. So there's a document from, from this time frame, uh, it's a little bit before, uh, that has, uh, it's a record of the payments made from all the providences. And there were 20, um, 20 uh, satires or satraps uh, under Darius when he was king. Um, and it, the, the entire taxable income from all 20 of those satraps for the year 
was 13,000 talents. So Haman was offering a year of tax revenue. So think about the United States, right? The United States, our yearly budget, it's in trillions and trillions of dollars. So this is an enormous amount of money that Haman is willing to put up. And there's all kinds of uh, thoughts on how that works, but um, he, he says he's going to pay this. It's this huge amount of money. Um, Haman goes out, into, or the king approves it. He, he puts it out into the entire empire and says, on this day in the future, it was, a, you know, uh, everybody is free to kill the Jews. In fact, we encourage you to kill the Jews and take their possessions. Now, that would be um, very much like the Holocaust if that was Haman's plan, that you would kill the Jews, take their possessions, and then use their possessions to pay for the killing of the Jews. So uh, that, that's one theory of how Haman would come up with that much money. Uh, now, Mordecai went to the king's gate. He was in sackcloth and ash. He's in mourning. Uh, Esther sends her uh, servants out to see him. He tells her about everything that's going on. Uh, he says, you've got to approach the king. And Esther says, I can't. If I go into the king's court um, uninvited, he can kill me. Like, everybody knows that. You don't go in uninvited. He has the authority to kill you. Now, there's a, a, a key part of that verse as well that says, she has not been summoned for 30 days. So again, the king has not seen her in 30 days. Like, where's the love? I, I mean, it's not like, you know, he's out and about. He's in the court. So is she. Where is, where is the loving, romantic relationship? I'm just not seeing it. But... That's not uncommon for political relationships anyways. Uh, so Mordecai responds to Esther with possibly the best-known passage in the entire book. Esther 4, 13 through 14 says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. All right, so I want to pause for a moment from our sponsors. At this point in the story, we're going to take a, a quick commercial break, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the similarities that we have with Esther, right? So this is a ton of story, a, a ton of, of kind of what's happening in this book. And I want to think about some of the similarities that we have with Esther and Mordecai because we live in a country, as we talked about before, that's wealthy and diverse. Um, we're a bureaucratic nation. We're a, we're a center of culture and art. We have a large military. Um, we live in a culture that tells us to pursue our pleasures. And it tells us to pursue our pleasures without any regard for stopping, right? Uh, Hazarus encourages his guests in that exact same one in chapter one. So, our culture is just as materialistic and self-indulgent as the first Persian Empire at this time. Um, there is a constant pressure for us to find our peace and comfort in things that we can own or purchase or possess, like that power that we can have over stuff. Uh, the comforts that we have at our fingertips are immense, right? Like we live like kings. Think about back to that list. Uh, in chapter 1. Ahasuerus is putting all of these things on display. How many of you guys have cotton curtains at home? Anybody have white cotton curtains? 
Uh, fine linen cloth. Anybody have fine linen cloth that they like to put on display when people come over as, as a sign of your power and wealth? Silver rods and decor, right? Who has curtain rods in their house? A little bit of silver. Uh, who has a landscaped backyard, right? This, all this whole party took place in a garden. Uh, marble pillars, maybe not. What about granite countertops, though? Can we have granite countertops, right? Fine china, decorative silverware, gold, silver, precious stones. Any food and beverage you want is at your fingertips, right? I mean, this is an amazing thing. Like, people used to have to make their food. We it's like, you know, I feel like Thai food. People are like, what's Thai food? <laughs> We're like, Thai food? Oh, I mean, there's four places we can go in Little Minifee, right? So we have any of our desires are at a moment's notice, and we live in this culture. Now, Esther faced the same temptation that we face each day. We turn our heads at the plight of others, and we find comfort in the things of this world or distraction in the things of this world. So this temptation that Esther has as she's deciding, do I go in and confront the king? Do I go in and talk about this? This is a temptation for her, right? Like she lives comfortably now. Like, yeah, she went through some hard things, but she's in a comfortable spot. There is a temptation for us to assimilate into the culture we live in and cease being a light to those around us. I mean, Esther could have just kicked back and said, you know what? God has not given a clear way. There's too much danger. I have too much to lose. And we face that same temptation. But Esther was brought to a clear moment of decision, right? We live our lives. We don't have these clear moments of decision from a a day-to-day perspective. Um, She was forced to choose between her comforts and what was right. Uh, Now, I don't believe it's the only temptation she wrestled with either. Um, I think she also very likely could have wrestled with despair. I mean, we definitely see Mordecai wrestling with despair because at times there's misfortune or tragedy or pain in our lives that make us feel like God is absent. And Esther is a book that God is not mentioned in. Even, even when, um, well, even when Esther responds back to Mordecai here and says, okay, I'm going to fast for three days, and I want you to go fast too. Normally in the Bible, fasting and praying are unified, and in Esther it's not. She just says fasting. So it's this, there's this unique absence of God in the moments of tragedy and pain uh, that I think can cause us to despair and, and, and I believe caused Mordecai and, and Esther to despair, but they moved past those temptations, and they acted. So when we are faced with these situations, what do we do? What do we do when there's pain and tragedy in our life, when there's suffering and hardship, and we have to make that choice? Well, let's get back to our story, and we'll find out. Uh, Esther heard Mordecai's words. She made a decision, right? In Esther 4 through 16, uh, she says, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther pushed back the feelings of despair that separated her, and, or she pushed back the feelings of despair and she separated herself from the indulgences of her society, right? She took a fast, she spent some time with the Lord, and then she surrounded herself with people doing the same. 
So she separated herself off, she sought the Lord, and she prepared to do what it was that she had committed to. On the third day, um, in Esther 5, it says, uh, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. Now, Esther's been fasting for three days, and she puts her royal robes on, but, I mean, she's been fasting and in emotional turmoil. So, again, I don't see this as a scene where Esther's standing on the other side, and she looks all beautiful, and suddenly uh, the king looks up and is filled with, with love. It's my wife, come here. No, like, this is, like, he looked, I mean, she's, she's got to be a little bit gaunt, and, and she's got to be weak, and, and I think the, the weight of this was on her, and, and he was probably moved with compassion and pity, and if we think back to the, the thing that made him so angry about Vashti is that she disobeyed him, and that she humiliated him, and it's Esther's humility that makes any kind of bridge to that king. So the, so at, the king calls her out, he puts a scepter out, invites her to speak, asking her what it is that she wishes. He says, even up to half of my kingdom. Uh, at this point, it would be simple if she just made her request, right? But Esther's much wiser than that, and she knows the king. She's spent years um, you know, going through this and, and, or, or you know, having a rela- uh, relationship with him, kind of seeing how things go. Um, she spent days fasting, and I assume praying, even though the, the text doesn't say that, um, putting together a plan. So she invites the king and Haman to a private feast, and she prepares the feast to honor the king, which is making that connection again. It's been 30 days since she's been summoned. So she's making that connection again. She's honoring him. She patiently, humbly pursues that way to honor him. And then at the end of the feast... As they're drinking wine, the king asks her again, what is it that she wishes? And Esther responds in verse 5-7, it says, um, my, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, Haman leaves the feast feeling pretty good, right? He's like, man, like it's just the queen and the king and me. Like, how important am I? So he goes back home, and, or he's going back home, <laughs> and he walks out. I, I just see this scene, like, he's walking out, and he's just, you know, like, kind of feel like there's this music where he's just, like, walking on air, and it's going, and he turns the corner, and you see, like, I kind of see this as a musical number, which, don't judge me. Um, you got all these people in kind of, like, their, their colorful robes and, and stuff, like, all the officers, and he turns this corner, and they all take a knee and there's Mordecai in sackcloth and ash staring at Haman. And Haman is just, every, all the good feelings he had just escape him and, and, and depart him. And he's just filled with wrath. And he goes home and he tells his wife and his friends. And he says, all of this happened. And then I go and I see Mordecai and he doesn't bow to me and I'm just so mad and, and I have all of these things, but I can't let this one thing go. And they say, you know what you should do? You should build a gallow 50 feet high and just hang the man. Just kill him. And he's like, you know, that's a great idea. I'm going to go ask the king about it. So, you know, they finish their party. They go back. Well, it just so happens that the king was feeling a little restless that night and he couldn't sleep. So he calls in one of his servants, they start reading through the book of records, and they come across the record of Mordecai uncovering this plot. And the king says, 
what did we do for that guy anyways? And he's like, uh, nothing. Like, we should do something for him. He says, who's in my court? So Haman has come now in the morning to ask the king, hey, can we kill Mordecai? Servants say, oh, Haman's in the court. He said, well, bring Haman in. He says, Haman, what should I do to a man that delights the king? How should I honor him? And Haman, thinking that the king is wishing to honor, honor him, because who else would the king delight in, says this. He says, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most notable officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, Haman says all this, and the king's like, oh, that's brilliant. Go do that for Mordecai. (laughs) I mean, the irony, the reversal of fortune here is rich. Right? I mean, the setup, I mean, it just is, is like, oh, man, sorry but not sorry, amen? Like, that you deserve. And, and there's this justice that comes out of it. So Haman goes and he does this, and it's the worst day of his life, he thinks. And then he goes back home to sulk, and he just complains. And he's like, oh, like, I had to do this for Mordecai. And, and his friends actually tell him, like, oh, man. If Mordecai's a Jew, like, this is the beginning of your, un- or your undoing. And then the king's eunuchs show up to take him to the feast. So he goes to the feast, and they eat again, and they're drinking. I think this must have been an awkward thing. I kind of feel like, you know, Haman probably started to feel good again, right? He's like, you know what, but I'm at this feast with the king. Like, this is just a, a minor setback, and we're going to kind of go through. And the feast ends, and the king asks Esther what her request is again. And in verse 7-3... Esther says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. That's pretty crazy. Let's take a, a, another quick word from our sponsors. Uh, hopefully you guys don't think that's terribly... Uh, <laughs> there, there's no one sponsoring our sermons but God, so that's kind of the, uh, the, the joke there. Uh, so this response is made in a humble and subservient tone, right? I mean, if we had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't have said anything because I understand what this is going to cost the king. I understand that you're going to lose an, an entire year of tax revenue. So she, she sees it from his perspective, and she builds roads by acknowledging the reality of the situation. And she, she looks to him for mercy. And she'd spent years finding favor with those that were in authority over her. Uh, Mordecai, Haggai, um, the other eunuchs, and of course the king. Uh, Esther was not only in a moment for a time such as this, she was also prepared for a time such as this. So as we look at that, the hardships and the tragedies that she had to endure with the loss of her parents, the year being spent preparing to please the king, um, this interesting night of audition, um, and then the years of being married to a man who valued uh, (laughs) things uh, over people, objects of of wealth over people, 
uh, righteousness uh, or power over righteousness, alcohol over thoughtfulness, it, it, this experience created in her a strength and a wisdom. Uh, the book represents 11 years. And I think as we think about the trials that we face in life, as we look at the things that come up for us, it's easy to be lost in the moment. And when we look at Esther and we think, man, like 11 years, it's just wrapped up into this 10-chapter book. And, and, you know, we're about five minutes over on, on sermon time um, already. But it's still not a lot of time when we consider we've gone through 11 years of things happening. So as we look at this, uh, and we, we, we start thinking about the moral of the story, it's these events that kind of play into that. Because the story wraps up really quickly, right? Uh, from here, Haman, uh, Haman pleads with, pleads with uh, the king leaves, he's angry, can't believe that Haman did this, he comes back, Haman's pleading with Esther on the couch, and he's like, what are you doing, assaulting my wife, like trying to molest her? And goes and is then hung on the very gallows that he created for Mordecai. Uh, the, an edict goes out. The Jews are able to fight back, basically. Not only are they allowed to fight back, but they're allowed to pursue their enemies. So the Jews get this great victory. Mordecai is raised to be an advisor to the king and, and increases in power. Um, and the Feast of Purim is instituted as a remembrance of the relief that God provided and that they had received, and it turned their sorrows into joy. And that is really the core message of story, is that in, in a book that does not name God, it becomes clear that God is sovereign over these things. And as we look at our lives, and we get kind of caught up in the moment-to-moment -moment afflictions, we can look at this story and think, you know what? Esther was faithful we should be faithful too, right? God is in control even in the worst of situations. The book of Esther has a satisfying ending, right? The bad guy gets his dues. Um, those who were to be victimized instead receive rewards. So there's this reversal of fortune. Um, there's a satisfying irony in that reversal of fortune between Haman and Mordecai, especially with the gallows. You know, Mordecai refused to bow and acknowledge Haman and it infuriated him so much that he built a gallows to kill him, only to find that those gallows were ultimately the instrument of his own defeat, right? Now, I want to read you a passage from Matthew 4. Matthew 4, 8 through 10, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, this is speaking of Christ, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus refused to bow to Satan and acknowledge him. And Satan was so infuriated, he used all of his influence to have a cross built and put Christ to death, only to find out that it was that very cross that was the instrument of his defeat. So, I bring this up because our confidence is not in Esther. And even though Esther is an encouraging story, uh, it's an encouraging historical account, we could be in times in our life. There can be pressures and, and things that, that are causing us grief 
that have not, don't have a little nice bow on them at the end, right? They haven't resolved. And we're in the midst of that 11 years. And we feel the, the pressure and the temptation to just assimilate into the culture and get the pleasure that we can now. Or to just fall into despair and be completely crippled. And if we don't remember that Christ made that payment on our behalf, then that's where we're going to be stuck. But when we remember that, when we remember it is the very thing that Satan designed or, or, or desired to end us that was his undoing, we can kind of laugh at it, right? We can look at the culture, we can look at the things that the culture is telling us to value, and we can say, this is absurd. We can't take any of this with us. We can look at the pain that's caused in our, our, our lives. I mean, we think about, like, not everybody got a little pretty bow on the ending, right? Stephen the martyr, he was killed, and God received glory. Um, Jim Elliott is a, a missionary. Um, I'm going a little bit out of order here, Vanessa, so. Uh, Jim Elliott was a missionary, and he was killed by the tribe he was trying to reach with the gospel, and he once said before his death, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You guys have so much more than possessions and positions and power. And I would just encourage you guys to take three things from our look at Esther. Number one, uh, don't allow your setting to distract you, right? I mean, again, we live in a culture that's going to be telling us, pursue pleasure, the world is, is tempting. Don't be changed by the world. Go and change the world. The second thing is you need to play a humble leading role, right? Um, like God, Jesus, is the star of our film. But we see it from our perspective. And, and we are the leading role in our life. So be a humble leading role. Be a person of character. Trust God to change people's hearts at the right time and act in a way that causes others to favor you, right? Build bridges. Be a light to people. Uh, and number three, the ending that discourages you, the ending that discourages you is not the real ending. And if, if there's one thing that I would say is this is the thing that I think we will get most hung up on is something comes up in our life and it consumes us. And we need to remind ourselves that that is not the ending. This is just a step. Um, in, in a book that God has not mentioned, this is a great evidence that God is still in control. And we live in a time, you know, Scripture's not being written anymore. Like, we have it. It's here the Holy Spirit is alive and active, but, but there's not a prophet running around saying, thus saith the Lord, who has that kind of scriptural authority. So we live in a time when, when God is more silent than in the books that we're reading. So we need to be like Esther, and, and we need to look at his promises and, and, and go towards that. And I encourage you guys, if you have some time, and you haven't sat down and read through Esther, do it this week. You know, read through it and, and kind of see uh, all of the little pieces that I left out.
the book of Esther established the Feast of Purim. And the, the Feast of Purim was about relief, right? Relief that God had given to the Jews uh, from a, a, a death sentence that they had received. And when we take communion, communion is about relief, right? It's about the relief that Christ has given us when, because he has redeemed us from a death sentence that we had. So as, as we take communion today, I just want you guys to remember the payment that the body of Christ was and the promise that his resurrection represents and the relief that that brings. So if you're carrying weights today, just think about them. You know, bring them to mind and take those elements and just confess to the Lord that these are weights on me right now, that I'm, I'm struggling with temptation to allow these to consume my life. And I want to cast them aside. And I want to put them out and just confess my misalignment with your sovereign plan. And I want to receive the relief that you have offered because we are all going to die. It's, you know, as, as Jim Elliott said, right? It's something we cannot keep, but we're trading it for something we cannot lose. Uh, but let me pray for us as, as we take communion. Lord, I just come before you, Lord, and, and as just thinking about this story that you included in the Word of God, and uh, Lord, I thank you for it. Um, I pray that you would move your spirit, Lord, that, that my brothers and sisters would be encouraged by it, and uh, Lord, that they would just have a, a precious time of communion with you as we take the elements. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would be glorified by our lives, Lord, that you would give us opportunities to stand and be a voice for you in the face of hostility, or that you would give us opportunities to, to bring you glory, or that you would give us opportunities to build bridges with people and to pursue people who are not like us and to show them that the love you have shown us is more important than any differences that divide us. Lord, I, I, I love you and I thank you for changing our hearts empowering us and giving your spirit to us. It is amazing that we have access to your spirit in a way that Esther did not. And you will do amazing things with that. Lord, I pray for the story that you are weaving in each of the people in this room. I just pray that you would give them strength, that you would give them encouragement, and Lord, that they would just be a voice and a light for you in a dark world. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.